Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to be with you today. Some parts of Southern California seeing the rain taper. Other parts, there's still plenty of rain coming down and We hope you stay safe as you make your way around the region. Coming up a little bit later, LAPD Chief Michael Moore, his final appearance as chief as he retires in just about a week. We have a lot to talk with him about what he saw unfold over his decades-long career with LAPD and work he thinks is important for his successor to prioritize. But we begin, speaking of the range, with the tremendous challenge that the Palos Verdes Peninsula has been facing with landslides, with homes that have been red-tagged, and, of course, with the closure of the beautiful architectural showpiece that is the Wayfarer's Chapel. We got that word last week and heartbreaking for so many people, including people who had weddings scheduled just days later who had to scramble to find another location for their big event. We're going to be talking about how the different communities on the peninsula are responding to the challenge that's been brought by this unprecedented movement of land. Joining us first is a resident of the peninsula, LAist reporter who's been covering the land movement, Yusra Farzan. Yusra, thanks so much for being with us. Now, I, I understand you you make your daily commute through this area of, of land movement. What's that been like? Um, thanks, Larry. Yeah, I take PV Drive South, um, you know, in the mornings to drop my daughter off at school and every day is a different drive. Sometimes it's very smooth, sometimes it's very bumpy. Um, I'm always seeing, you know, road crews over there working because uh, it, it goes through their um, landslide complex. And it is a very important road because it can, you know, it connects the residents in the peninsula to to Long Beach, to, you know, to other cities in the South Bay. And it's also an evacuation um, road. So it is a very important street in PV. Um, and, I, I, you know, just a few months ago, Burma Road had to close down because of the land movement. And that was also an evacuation road. And because that road closed down, it resulted in the closure of trails in the area. Um, and I'm sure, you know, for listeners would know, PV is known for its hiking trails. Oh, incredible trails. I've hiked some of them. And it's just, well, it's a beautiful place to live or to hike or to or to visit. A- absolutely. So uh, land movement, historically, there's been a lot of it, including historic landslides, I know, on the peninsula. But um, since it's been developed with homes, uh, have we ever had anything that's comparable in the way of land movement? Um, what I, I've been speaking to the city geologist, you know, in my reporting, and what he's been describing is unprecedented land movement in the last 15 months. So it's gone from, you know, inches of movement to feet um, in the last 15 months, he said it was 
a ninefold increase. Um, we've seen land move seven feet in some areas. Wow. Um, and I've noticed it. You know, when I go down there, I've seen intersections closed down. Um, I spoke with a resident yesterday who lives opposite a house that was red tagged last year. Um, you know, she's she's lived in the area for 19 years and she's never had issues except for last year where she started noticing cracks in her house. There were cracks in her garage um, last summer, so she can't use it anymore. Um, there's a manhole that's open in front of her home. Um, a power line snapped in front of her home. Um, so it's very dangerous conditions just within the last 15 months because of the historic rainfall that we've seen. We're talking about the Palos Verdes Peninsula, which at one point in global history was actually an island when sea levels were, were higher. Now, of course, a peninsula, beautiful place to live and to recreate here in Southern California. But we're talking about the big challenges faced with the land movement there. In addition to our Yusra Farzan, we're joined by John Crookshank, who's the mayor of Rancho Palos Verdes, the city attempting to have a, de- a declaration of disaster, which would be helpful with remediating what needs to be done. Mayor Crookshank, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me this morning. So just share with us within your city, which is one of a few there on the peninsula, how, how are you dealing with this? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for covering this. And, and I guess you're great and kind words about our city and the Palos Verdes Peninsula. So our city of Rancho Palos Verdes, um, as was mentioned, the last couple of rain cycles have been unprecedented. And of course, that's created uh, the the additional movement that you were just mentioning there in our city. And so uh, how we're dealing with it is we're a multifaceted approach with different government agencies. And last night at our city council meeting, our Council uh, voted unanimously to uh, send a request for a state of emergency for our specific area, the greater Portuguese Bend landslide complex. Um, and we believe with the governor's assistance in declaring that state of emergency for us, um, that'll allow us to uh, be able to move forward with projects that we believe will help mitigate the landslide, reduce the movement, and get some normalcy back to our residents in that area. So what would that mean that you could um, get projects underway without the typical environmental review or the Coastal Commission? Or how, how as a practical matter, would that help you? Well, that's correct. So um, prior to even the last couple of years, in fact, the last several years, we've been working on uh, a project to uh, mitigate the movement because, as your listeners probably are aware, it didn't just start a couple of years ago. Um, This is an ancient landslide complex that was activated back in the 1950s when there was road construction going on in our area. Um, So this area has been moving since that time. Um, And every year, our city and the county with their sewer lines, and we've been maintaining that. And as uh, Yusra mentioned in her drive, um, every every so often it does move, and we actually call that stretch, that one-mile stretch, uh, the roller coaster, and there's one area that's even called the ski slope because it's such a dramatic drop in the road. So um, it's nothing new in regards to land movement, but um, what we believe how this will help uh, with the governor's uh, office is to help us move that project where we are in the midst of preparing an environmental impact report and addressing uh, comments to that report, as many people probably are aware, it does take um, 
several years sometimes to address comments and to move through that process. And so we're asking the governor to allow us to move forward with some of the work. Um, of course, we're not going to be uh, forgetting about the environmental requirements. We want to work through those comments and through the concerns while we're doing taking actions now to uh, help our residents because of the unprecedented movement that's going on. We're talking with the mayor of Rancho Palos Verdes, John Crookshank. I'd love to hear with residents from residents of uh, PV to share with us what you've been going through, either with your commute, if your home has uh, had to uh, respond, to deal with significant damage, you've had challenges with that, please share them with us or or on your street with your neighbors. Please share with us what you're experiencing on the peninsula as the result of this uh, unprecedented, at least since uh, development of the peninsula, movement of land. We're at 866 893 5722-866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Again, the phone number. I'd love to hear from PV residents talking about what you're dealing with with these torrential rains and land movement, 866-893-5722. Mayor Crookshank, uh, you know, all the modeling that we see as, as the climate warms is that we're going to get more of these very intense rain events, um, you know, sp- uh, spread out with, with droughts and, and, you know, extreme, extreme uh, 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 precipitation. What, what, if anything, can the city do to try and respond to that, given the geologic vulnerability of the peninsula? Well, that's a big question, uh, and I'm actually a, a licensed civil engineer as well, and and so engineers always try to search for solutions. And as you mentioned, um, as we have different weather patterns that are much greater than we're used to uh, seeing, like we have over the last couple of years with this unprecedented amount of rainfall, uh, we we need to do take actions that uh, can protect certain vulnerable areas like this landslide area. Um, we believe that uh, there's two two causes. Number one, water entering that area that actually soaks right into the ground instead of making its way to the ocean. Um, most of the water that does fall on the Palos Verdes Peninsula does soak into the ground. In this particular location, we would like to, first of all, fill all these large fissures that are uh, basically recharging the water table, unfortunately, and further lubricating the slip plane. Um, also, we want to construct drainage swales, line certain uh, certain canyons with a non-penetrable uh, membrane so to make sure that uh, water doesn't soak in and makes its way down the hill and installing drain pipes. And then finally, we'd like to install a number of dewatering wells that are basically horizontal hydro augers that will relieve the pressure uh, and, and the water and reduce the water table in, in that area. All right. We're talking with the mayor of Rancho Palos Verdes, John Crookshank. My apologies for that sound that burst in in the middle of the answer that he was giving to us. Um, uh, Is there any way to hasten the landslide, like control it, for example, so that part of the movement can can be done in anticipation, done with earth moving equipment? Or is it just so massive that's not realistic? So... um... Many attempts have been made for the past several decades to hasten the the movement. Um, 
at one point they had put a number of large concrete reinforced caissons uh, at the beach level uh, just because of the massive amount of earth that's coming down toward the ocean uh, those basically just sheared off so what we found is is that uh, it's putting any type of physical barrier in front of the movement has proven to be too challenging and and too costly i We've heard many people talk about building a bridge over it, but of course you'd have to anchor it to something which you couldn't do. And of course that's a mile wide landslide. So yeah. that would just be too cost prohibitive. So many attempts have been made, but we feel uh, based on all the studies over the last several decades that we're on to solutions that will make real differences out there. So the you think long-term the road can be saved? Well, I believe that the the amount of movement can be reduced greatly so that that road can continually be uh, maintained and kept open. As was mentioned, that road is a, a, a regional connector between not just our palace peninsula cities, but also San Pedro, uh, Torrance, Redondo Beach. So it's a very important roadway. It's also an important um, uh potential access point because as we even talked about last night, it's raining now, but once it starts to dry out, now we end up with dry brush and weeds and, and end up with fire hazards again. So um, if there were, God forbid, a, a fire to occur and we needed to evacuate residents uh, off the peninsula, that Palos Verdes Drive uh, is a major thoroughfare and an access point to many of our residents. And so that road is critical to to our operations and our safety. We're talking with the mayor of Rancho Palos Verdes, John Cruikshank. Uh, John, just as an aside, is it just coincidental you happen to be a civil engineer and the mayor of Rancho <laughs> Palos Verdes, or is it, that related at all? No. Well, um, that's a great question. It's almost coincidental. Um, I've lived here in this community for 20 plus years and and um, I have been a civil engineer for my entire professional life. Um, and I actually did run for office uh, touting the fact that I am an engineer. Okay. I, I do yeah. I do tell many of my friends, hey, we need more engineers in public service because of just our, our background. All right, let's talk with Alyssa, who's in Rancho Palos Verdes. Good to have you with us. Alyssa, how have you been experiencing the damage caused by the landslide? Hi, um, I, I'm listening to you and I just had to call in because it is extremely scary. Um, I drive that road every day to take my daughter to high school and you have to drive with extreme caution and every day it's different. There, it, there seems to be new, new damage and um, many of the kids will take public transit as we have two high schools on the peninsula. Um, and I'm afraid to even have my daughter drive on the bus because the roads are so so scary right now. Alyssa, thank you for sharing that. And so, Mayor Crookshank, uh, uh, to what extent are you monitoring the road? Because I know the movement can happen, you know, weeks after this rain event, months after this rain event. So how frequently do you inspect it to make sure that it is safe, addressing the concerns Alyssa's expressing? Well, uh I appreciate Alyssa's concerns, and I, I think the only silver lining to this landslide is that it is a slow-moving landslide complex. So the rains that we just had, you don't necessarily see further movement until a week or two uh, after the event. Um, so we did talk about moving several feet per year, but if you kind of 
divide that by the number of days. It's not moving several feet per day, fortunately. Um, our city is monitoring the roads pretty much every day as much as possible. And when they do find it to be impassable or to be uh, a danger or threat to our uh, motoring public, they will get out there and repair the road. So quite frequently, our residents and our guests will, will see the road crews out there working on those roads so constantly every week at this point we're doing something new out there mayor just before i let you go you know so many people are concerned about the future of wayfarers chapel and we understand a number of the windows uh were were cracked as a result of land movement that there is structural concern about the integrity of of the building um are you in talks with the operators of the chapel about whether it can be saved no, we, we are in talks with them. In fact, they attended our city council meeting last night, and we attended their press conference last week when they announced their closure. Um, of course, any of you that have been to the Wayfarers Chapel know it's it's a gem. One of um, a kind. One of a kind for this, this nation and a beautiful structure, but it's a very delicate structure. It's a redwood uh, uh, structural members with uh, glass, all glass. And so you can imagine how landslide movement uh, would would affect that and and it's we we are going to work closely with Wayfarers Chapel to get them back up and operational as quick as possible but we first need to get the land movement to be slowed down to the rate that we're more accustomed to prior to that happening all right mayor Crookshank, thank you so much we appreciate you filling us in on the latest in Rancho Palos Verdes we appreciate it my pleasure. John Crookshank, the mayor of Rancho Palos Verdes, and our own Yusra Farzan, LA's reporter who's been covering this story, and it hits close to home literally for her as she's describing the roller coaster road that she takes with PV Drive South uh, to come here to our LA's studios. Yusra, thanks so much, and we'll look forward to your continuing coverage of this at LAS.com. Thanks, Larry. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Coming up, Michael Moore, his final visit to us on Air Talk as the chief of the Los Angeles Police Department. He has just about a week left before his retirement. We'll talk with him about the major events during his decades-long career on the force and what he sees as the biggest challenges awaiting a successor. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
It's Hair Talk on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by LAPD Chief Michael Moore. He's chief for just about another week. Then Dominic Choi, high-ranking official in the department, becomes the interim chief until a successor is chosen for uh, a five-year term for the head of the department. Chief Moore, good to have you back with us. Uh, first, I appreciate all all the visits that you've had over these, these what's it been, six years yes. now. So appreciate it so much. So how are you feeling with a week to go in your term? Well, I'm excited. It's a you know, change of a turning of a page, a new chapter, uh, and at the same time, it's bittersweet. It's uh, been a part of my life for more than four decades and certainly an honor and a privilege to have served as chief of this great city, uh, of a great department, I think the, the finest police department in all of America. And with that, though, I'm also excited to, you know, as we turn that chapter, uh, that page into the next chapter, to look forward to spending more time with my family. Uh, we'll be leaving the state and, and getting near my, my daughter. So Sunday night dinners will be back to our routine. And, and that's just uh, something I think many of us who spend our lives in these type of long-term professions you know, look forward to is uh, eventually moving into a, a more relaxed setting, if you would. Well, I'm, I'm sure you're not going to miss the stress, the demand of a job that's pretty much 24-7 and has been for six years and through a number of crises as well. But are, are you going to go through withdrawal? As you say, it's been more than 40 years. This has been your life. Well, it's certainly. This is a lifestyle. I, in fact, I, I speak with uh, frequently uh, with new command officers and people who join this profession as well from the, so at all levels. It does become a lifestyle. It is part of, of being a police officer. I think, and I think, frankly, it's something the public expects is that we're – uh, police officers at the status, uh, the, res- the respect, but also the responsibilities are one that exists both on and off duty. And so after this many decades and having seen so much and experienced it, but also in, you know, enjoyed so much of it, it will be a change. But again, uh, you know, I've, I've seen this state coming and it's something that I have uh, planned and anticipated. And I, I know there'll be adjustments, but you know, I believe that uh, those are, these are all opportunities. This, uh, every day is a blessing. And today is, uh, you know, today is, uh, as I sit and reflect over the past, I'm encouraged. I'm, uh, you know, there's things I wish I'd done differently. There's, uh, but there's much to be proud of. And that, and, and as I leave the organization, I know I leave it in good hands with the appointment of interim chief uh, Dominic Choi, uh, a great man, a great leader, a, t- a tremendous team builder, a person who's going to continue with a steady hand with this organization as we build our engagements with our public, as we build trust, continue to pursue uh, crime reduction, uh, community engagement. A host of other um, strategies that are, are well in hand. With um, the incoming interim chief Choi, uh, do you anticipate that he is going to make any significant changes, or will his role, as you expect, be largely um, only make in, in very incremental changes, awaiting the the permanent successor? Well, Dominic has been a, a senior member of my team uh, now for for more than a few years. He was previously a chief of staff. He's currently over the operations of the majority of of the organization. And I suspect that he'll continue in the delivery of our strategic plan, one that has been uh, you know, approved by the Board of Police Commissioners. It lays out the various initiatives and, and measures and uh, uh, mileposts that we're to pursue and challenge. Uh, and I've expect that he's going to continue to execute that. He was part of assembling that. Now, having said that, you know, every leader is uh, unique and different, and I'm sure and confident that he will see things uh, differently as my management team has over the course of my tenure as chief. There's, it's been a discussion on many different fronts, and at this point now I'll hand the, the gavel, if you will, to him, and 
I will say that while I expect consistency and I, and I see success, I also think that the public can expect that this will not be an idle chief. This will not be a placeholder that the, that the department suddenly goes into neutral. There's too much at stake uh, for the safety of Los Angeles. There's too much at stake for the day-to-day, but also the strategic movement of this department. So I think you'll see a chief that's with uh, Dominic that they can be proud of, that they can see uh, that the organization is still going to challenge itself. We're still going to work uh, and strive to build and, and bolster the trust of the public and improve the safety of Los Angeles. There are challenges, which we'll get into, that the department continues to face and ones that have been difficult, I know, for you to overcome in, in the six years. And as as you look at some of those, do you think it's possible to make that change with someone from within the department? Or is this a time in the department's history, as there have been a few others, where it could be advantageous for someone from elsewhere to come in and shake things up? Well, with the interim chief uh, now been determined and decided by the Board of Police Commissioners, and certainly uh, it enjoyed the support uh, of Mayor Bass in, in, in the right person at the right time, now the the matter before the Board of Police Commissioners is to work with the mayor as the mayor is doing outreach across the communities of Los Angeles as well as her work inside the organization to understand what are the attributes, not who the person is, but what should that chief represent and what are the qualities and experience and background and and the leadership uh, abilities going forward. I have every confidence that the Board of Police Commissioners are well aware of the attributes of an internal candidate and the benefits that they bring to an organization, as well as potential benefits of an outsider. Uh, it is my belief that this organization has tremendous leadership within its ranks at all levels, and that uh, it is my expectation that a number of those individuals within the organization are going to uh, apply for and compete for the uh, permanent chief, as you indicated. You saw, though, when Bill Bratton came in, that, that there were some pretty dramatic changes made after his arrival. Yeah, there was, and, it, and the department was in an entirely different position. The department was in, a, uh, I believe, a state of crisis, which I don't believe, despite others that may uh, say otherwise. I don't believe we're in a state of crisis. I, uh, we're not a department that is uh, in now in a consent decree. Uh, we're not an organization that is resisting change or obstinate to the or blind to the shortfalls that we that we have, and and I don't believe that this is an organization that requires somebody to come in and turn it from inside out. I think there's a lot going right with this organization. It also is reflective of challenges that are experiencing not just here in Los Angeles, but across uh, major uh, agencies across America in policing, as far as recruitment and retention of personnel, the morale of our organizations, the challenges with criminal justice reforms. There's a host of, of opportunities that the department is working toward uh, improving its performance and leading American policing and demonstrating ways in which to accomplish uh, constitutional policing, such as our work with uh, pretext stops, such as our work with reforming our use of force, a host of other activities that we're leading American policing in. So uh, a Bill Bratton is an individual that, uh, while accomplished and a man I have a great deal of respect for, uh, came in at a time when it was a much different department. So going forward, though, that's not to say that as the the mayor is committed to, this is the second largest city in America. It deserves a nationwide search of anyone who believes they are capable and would uh, perform uh, in an outstanding fashion. And then now the deliberative process will go uh, be on the responsibilities of the Board of Police Commissioners. Later, three names will be provided to 
their three names that they feel best qualified will be provided to the mayor, and it'll be her um, on her watch that that determination of the chief who will lead, whoever that person is, uh, they can enjoy that they will enjoy my support because their support, their success is the success of Los Angeles Police Department, and the success of Los Angeles Police Department is the success of Los Angeles. We're talking with outgoing LAPD Chief Michael Moore. He has just about a week left in his term. The interim uh, chief of the department will be Dominic Choi. Uh, if you have questions for the chief, you can email them to us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. You can call us at 866-893-5722. One of the crises that your department faced in your tenure were the protests on the street and um, accompanying, or I shouldn't say accompanying, but at the aftermath of property destruction that came after peaceful protests that were in the street. Your your officers at the uh, scene, many of them were criticized for their response and and um, and and going overboard. You've talked on this program about changes that have been implemented since. Do you have confidence that with protests that occur in the future, that officers will be able to respond in a better way than they did to the post-George Floyd protests? Well, let me respond, first of all, to some of those characterizations. I don't believe that many of the officers of the thousands that were deployed uh, in an effort to facilitate peaceful, uh, largely peaceful demonstrations and then address those that became violent, where officers were viciously attacked, uh, where we saw, and I personally witnessed officers with broken bones or fractured skull, lacerations from the violence that members within these uh, demonstrations and protests uh, uh, attacked officers, and in their efforts to defend themselves as well as to quell violent acts of arson, looting, and so forth. There were instances, not widespread instances, but there were instances in which officers uh, did uh, fall short, that their actions were not justified. And we found them, uh, when, when the evidence demonstrated that, we found them out of policy and we took corrective, including disciplinary action. But they, by no means, did they represent the vast majority of men and women that went out there and did their very best. And I stand by the actions of the largest of the vast majority that did it right. And at the same time, I thought it was important that we do recognize and acknowledge that there were shortfalls, shortfalls within individuals as well as shortfalls within the leadership, uh, including myself, areas that I could and should have done better. And in in that aftermath of that self-reflection, it should by no means mean that I am embarrassed or that I regret what the department did. What it should represent is it's an organization that is committed to doing better, there is never a great organization doesn't, that doesn't challenge itself that what can I do better? And going forward, the last four years, we spent a considerable amount of time and resources to invest in our people with technology, with tools, with training, to ensure that they have the skill sets as up and down through the entire organization to challenge what I believe will be a challenging year. I think this year in 2024, as we uh, approach the presidential election, the discord that we see protests and demonstrations, we should and can expect that we will see uh, those demonstrations manifest themselves in the street, as we've seen in the last six months. But I do believe, and I'll close, that the training and development and readiness of our people today far outpaces where we were four years ago. And I expect, uh, I expect to see 
uh, streets that, while there have demonstrations and protests, that they'll be done in a manner that's peaceful. And should people choose not to be peaceful, and should they choose to engage in lawful, unlawful, violent acts, that we'll be able to surgically address them quickly and save lives and protect the property of Los Angeles. LAPD Chief Michael Moore with us. You mentioned even yourself, you, you have a critique of how you responded and, and provided um, managerial oversight. Is there What's one specific area where if you had it to do over again, you would have done something different regarding the protest yeah. response? I, I would have mobilized the organization a day earlier. I, I believe that uh, I mo- we mobilized uh, the organization at 4 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon uh, asked for the National Guard to respond. In, re- in retrospect, uh, 12 hours earlier, uh, 16 hours earlier, on the second night where we saw, uh, you know, not just isolated acts of violence, but a more widespread violence downtown, I, I should have recognized that that was a point where the organization uh, had faced two days of, uh, or a day and a half of fairly persistent uh, demonstration protests that had that had uh, escalated to some individual acts of arson and violence. And and in retrospect, I wish I'd just pulled the trigger for full mobilization uh, that Friday night. We'll continue with LAPD Chief Michael Moore about a week in front of his retirement from the department. Dominic Choi will be the interim chief going forward until uh, a five-year term successor is chosen under the leadership of Mayor Karen Bass. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. We'll be back in a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle with outgoing LAPD Chief Michael Moore, more than four decades on the force with LAPD and the past six years as the chief of the department. Uh, Chief, I I just want to go back to the uh, protests after the murder of George Floyd, because one of the things that you did, which uh, I think for many of your officers did not sit well, was take a knee with the protesters in hindsight, do you wish you hadn't done that? Oh, absolutely uh, not. I, I absolutely, and I don't think that the, when you say that, you know, a vast majority or, or when you say a vast number, I don't know exactly how many officers. There were people within an organization that at the moment uh, and then later and some still who believe that that action by me uh, was somehow inappropriate. And I, do, I have worked for the last four years to articulate my position. Uh, it remains the same position as it did that day when uh, out in front of headquarters was a line of bike rail and uh, uh, hundreds of of individuals demonstrating and protesting following uh, acts of violence, following acts of arson in the city. I believe it was a Monday uh, morning that that it occurred. And we had individuals on the other side of that rail and demonstrators said, will you... Will you kneel with us? Will you talk with us? Will you? And, and I've said, you know, as they're kneeling in front of me, it's like, yes, I'll, I'll go eye to eye with you. I put my hand through the railing to shake their hand. Uh, there were pictures and photographs. People thought it was a photo moment. It was a spontaneous moment. It was one to demonstrate that uh, this is not a, uh, we're not occupying army. We're not the superior position uh, suppressing or oppressing people who have grievances with the government, including with policing, that we're humans, that we're people just like they are, that we have families, that we have wants and needs, that we're the things we agree with in in our society, the things we disagree with. But in this moment, what we were looking for was common ground of recognizing that we see them. I saw them. I see their, I hear their, their pain, their frustration. 
uh, whether it's on an individual basis or more widespread across policing or across all of our society. Now, there's those who believe that I was kneeling in a sense of submitting myself. I believe that it was a matter of demonstrating the human side of law enforcement, that uh, cops uh, uh, care deeply, that they're willing to sacrifice their lives uh, for others that they don't know because they care for them, and that and not to have the pride or the arrogance that I'm not going to uh, see you on an eye-to-eye as an individual of equal. There, of course, have been expressed morale problems within the department, and there have been, certainly from the L.A. Police Protective League, the union, criticism at times of your leadership. How much of the discontent within the department do you think relates to the general state of policing and discouragement that many officers are feeling, how much of it do you think you bear a degree of responsibility for for that morale? Well, I think, the, uh, first of all, in regards to the overall relationship with LEPPL, the Los Angeles Police Protective League and the directors, uh, I think overall I've, I've done very well. I meet continually meet uh, every two weeks or, or more frequently as needed with the league director, Craig Lally, uh, as the president of the league, and we have open dialogue and discussions. There's things that, and many times that we in which I agree, agree and, and which I find that actions within the organization did fall short and the members were treated unfairly or overly harsh. There's other times in which we have to agree to disagree. So that open door policy continues to this day. Uh, and I'm proud of the work that in the last five plus years that we've engaged in a dialogue to, I think, uh, to help address morale within the organization and address their grievances. I do believe that uh, I share a weight, as every leader does, regarding the morale of an organization is to pursue uh, uh, job conditions, uh, treatment, uh, resources so that people feel that they are recognized, that they have a voice, and that their work matters and that they're appreciated. And yet I also reflect across American policing that uh, we are, you know, we're part of that larger societal uh, profession, which has been under tremendous strain, stress, pressure, criticism, uh, often unfair. It's an organization that has gone through a workforce reduction of thousand, more than 1,000 officers, more than 300 civilians. Its, work, its workload today has never been greater. So it's under a great deal of stress from a number of different uh, avenues. And as a chief, it's been my responsibility, and it remains my responsibility until next Thursday, and then it'll become Chief Choi and then his predecessor, to identify ways in which we can uh, – recognize, identify those challenges, address them, but also be clear-eyed and understanding that this is a difficult moment in time. I do believe it's getting better. I do believe that, for instance, uh, steps that have been taken by Mayor Bass in establishing a record multi-year contract to identify and recognize the value of officers is not just uh, attracting uh, with recruit flows now coming in, higher interest levels, about 30% higher in applicants today than we were just six months ago. But we're also seeing fewer officers leave the organization than we did the year before and the year before that. And we have a number of officers that are asking to come back that left because of the thought of greener pastures. Oh, but, coming but, back from other departments where they left? Yes. Them? And so th- we are in a good point. And, and I believe that going forward that we need to be purveyors of hope, we need to be individuals that identify a path forward that to support our men and women. And I ask the public to recognize that they can contribute to that by finding an opportunity that when we're doing something right, 
uh, to acknowledge that because we certainly know that we will make mistakes and fall short and we will face and should face a criticism of those moments. We're talking with LAPD Chief Michael Moore, just about a week left in his tenure as chief. Uh, Mayor Bass has set a 9,500 officer goal uh, to boost up uh, the, the force of sworn officers. I think the latest I saw is we're looking at 8,900 officers. Um, what is it going to take, and is it realistic to reach 9,500? Well, 9,500 is just a waypoint. Uh, as remind the public, prior to the uh, global epidemic, uh, pandemic, I'm sorry, we were at 10,100 sworn members, about 3,300 uh, civilian professionals. Those numbers are, you know, are today 8,915 officers and about 2,620 civilians. But it's not just the headcount, if you will. These are these are people doing meaningful work on a variety of public safety fronts. And this workforce reduction is limiting our ability to do our to be effective uh, as much as effective as we should be able to be in public engagement and being present in our communities and providing for public safety and in preparation for world events such as LA 28, uh, the Summer Games and Paralympics, the World Cup, uh, the Super Bowl is coming back to Los Angeles. There's a number of world events, but just day to day. Uh, the, the workforce that we have today is at historic lows, more than two decades, a smaller workforce. Can we build out of that? Yes, I believe that the strategies that have been identified, which is to tell our story, to, to attract uh, and retain people who want to be a part of, of, of a purpose of an organization to provide for public safety, to ensure that the wages, uh, job conditions and benefits uh, attract and retain from a from a very uh, short work pool. I mean, every police agency in America is looking for qualified applicants. So we've got to improve on that. Uh, I believe we're on a path there. We've got the right mayor. We've got the majority of the council who believes in that uh, and is supporting us. And I think that the public also, when we look at customer sentiment, when we look at community sentiment, our LMU study that was most recently produced showed that nearly 7 out of 10 Angelinos, the only people they trust more uh, are their neighbors. Than, than their local LA police officer. That's an improvement from years before. Uh, and I think that we're on that recovery because we're demonstrating our, our, our purpose, we're demonstrating our engagement, and that we're not going to simply become a reactionary force, but we're here to build the trust of our communities. LAPD Chief Michael Moore with us just about a week, remaining in his tenure, six years as chief of the department, more than 40 years on the LAPD. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name back in a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us here on Air Talk on LA. It's 89.3 LAPD Chief Michael Moore joining us on Air Talk. Um, Connie Rice, who has worked with the department over so many years on reform measures and in the wake of uh, the Rodney King beating and the L.A. riots, has been a very important figure with LAPD. She wrote a recent op-ed piece in the Los Angeles Times, I know that you've seen, in which she identified a number of areas she thought the department needed to improve. One of the issues she identified were black officers uh, many of whom she's spoken with, said that they felt that there had been 
a rise in anti-black racism, and not just from white colleagues, but from Latino officers in the department, and that this needed to be more proactively addressed to make black officers feel that they're supported and they're treated as equaled and, and included. What did you think when you saw that? Well, I identified it as an issue that we have within the organization as we have across uh, all of our city departments. There was a recent survey conducted by UCLA uh, at the workplace across major departments in LA, and it found a similar discord. And it's reflective of the region and it's reflective of our society today. Uh, race relationships today in the United States are at a low point, in my view. And as representatives within uh, you know, law enforcement that have, uh, by in-race relationships, have various images about what law enforcement has, discrimination, hostilities, uh, the treatment of, uh, of people of color, the unfair treatment of people of color, the, the, the harshness of that, is that then we have members within those organiz- within those identities that are now part of our department. And from within, they see evidence from time to time of that type of discrimination, that type of hostilities. And with that, they've called out and identified those instances, and they feel that in times there's been instances in which the department or the profession has either undermined or, or uh, un- uh, ignored uh, or pushed back against such assertions. I think it's important that when this came up uh, during the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, murder and the, and the civil unrest, is we brought people together of various, of various identities to have this conversation. And feedback I got is it didn't work well. And part of it is because it was too raw. The issues, the emotions were very much still uh, emotionally you know, charged, and any discussion really was pol- more polarizing than, than bringing p- them together. And over the last years, we've worked to try to approach this from different angles with building relationships with our employee-affiliated organization to understand where, when are there instances where they see that discrimination, that open hostility, when people put a particular television program on as some subtle message about a political posture or more blatantly, they, they post political ads or posters within the workplace. And individually, we've addressed those very, very uh, immediately and with punishment and discipline that says that this is not a position uh, where people have the uh, authority or that they should think that it's a safe space for them to have such divisive, uh, cruel, at times racist uh, and, and unprofessional conduct. And that's not, you, you, you don't tolerate, you, you shouldn't be tolerating that in people's personal social media, right? Because they're public servants. They don't have a right to, to engage in racist language on their own private social media, do they? When their private social media is not private, meaning that they have identified the themselves and the public yeah. can see that they're a member of this department. Uh, again, I have uh, been very direct in regards to cautioning our people uh, reminding them of their responsibilities on and off duty, Respo- reminding them that such conduct is unprofessional and will result in disciplinary action, including their removal, and I've sought that. Now, having said that, this is not just a hammer solution, though. We've got to recognize the underlying essence of why individuals with these varying identities have these uh, you know, these emotions and these beliefs, and what are the things that 
uh, other than the organization just uh, taking immediate action, which is important when people break the rules of conduct and the code of conduct. But what are the other ways of also sensitizing officers to understand the perspective of the other person? That always goes back to that kneeling again, right? You've got this individual where you've got, well, oh my God, how can this person, how can this chief of police for everything he represents demonstrate any type of, hum, uh, of humanity with this individual who represents this vicious demon? Well, first of all, the person on the other side is not a demon. They have, they have real grievances, and they certainly have, a, and the way we're going to work through that is by first recognizing what we have in common, which is decency and values. And we all want to live a life that is, uh, that is productive, that's rewarding, and we want to be treated fairly and with the rights regardless of our race, creed, or color. As an organization, we have work to do. And I look forward to, as I hand this baton off, for us to, to deepen that work uh, and deepen those conversations to improve the sense of fairness across the entire organization. LAPD Chief Michael Moore with us. We've talked about the challenges that the department's had during your tenure and, and going forward, but I, I want to hear from you what you're proudest of, and not just your six years necessarily as chief, because you've had many, many years with the department overall, and, and what, as you leave this position, do you feel best about during those years? Well, you know, I'll leave that to others primarily. I, I will say that what I have seen over the last... Uh, you know, nearly six years, and, and certainly the 40, this is my 43rd year with LAPD, is what I commonly refer to as the arc of policing, that it's on a continued path of building trust in our communities. It's not there yet. Uh, it is a, an effort to understand what are the things that pull away from the public's trust of policing? What are things when even, even our best intentions, the, the outcomes are unfortunate and erode the confidence in us? What are the things that build and bolster that? That when we look at this, that's a matter of our values. It's a matter of the of the policies that we make, how we use force, how we don't use force, the levels of the, the reverence for human life, the uh, proportionality, but also what are the effective enforcement techniques, and when is it more effective to use the shared responsibility of other resources to come and solve problems? In these last you know nearly six years, certainly with the downturn in the staffing of this organization, I'm most proud of of that unmatched in in the in this country is our ability to maintain service levels of responding to and protecting Angelinos from particularly acts of violence, uh, gun violence and otherwise, but also to protect local communities. And isn't, it isn't perfect, but when you look at the workforce, the reduction that we've experienced, the fact of the matter is many other agencies today have curtailed services to the point where even on violent crimes, they're taking them by a phone call. We have been able to avoid that because we've prioritized our staffing at the area level. We've prioritized the importance of, of officers on patrol. And we've also prioritized that our outreach engagement. We've not become what I'll commonly refer to as a fire department where we just simply recall, respond to call to call to call. Our measurement hasn't been, well, what's your routine call for service time? It's been instead, how do we build trust in neighborhood by neighborhood? And what are the activities that bolster that? And what are the activities that take away from that? Lastly, in such times of, of scarcity of resources, we could have pulled away. We could have pulled away from our community safety partnership engagement, where we build these unique uh, across ten sites. We're adding two more this year of officers trained and assigned to areas to build public confidence, to build community resilience. We could have pulled away from that, and we could have pulled away from what the lessons have been learned from that, and uh, and how to incorporate that in other parts of the organization. 
Chief Moore, thank you so much. I want to thank you again for your willingness to come on and join us monthly like this. It's great. You have a chance to connect with LA's listeners and to talk with them about what's going on with the department. We wish you very well in thank retirement you, and with your family. Thanks so much. God bless you. I appreciate you. Thank you. That's Michael Moore, outgoing LAPD chief. And we look forward to talking with interim chief Dominic Choi once he takes office in just another week or so. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at Theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us today. I just got an update on the ticket count for our upcoming 22nd annual Film Week Academy Awards preview at the Historic Orpheum Theater in downtown LA. We've sold several hundred tickets already, and we typically get the rush of ticket sales in the final two weeks before the event. So I want to make sure you don't miss out. Get a good seat right now. All 11 of our film critics are going to be on stage at the Orpheum. I just finished late last night choosing our clips that are going to be shown from all of the Oscar-nominated Best Picture nominees, and it's just going to be a great night. Our critics save up their best um, their best back and forth uh, for that special event. It's Sunday afternoon, March 3rd, exactly a week before the Oscars, at the Orpheum Theater on Broadway in downtown Los Angeles. So please join me. It's going to be a terrific event, as always. And we've added something new this year. That is, if you want to dress up in your Oscar finest, we'll have the red carpet out, and you can do a step and repeat with our background for LAist and take a photo of, of your guest for the evening. So if you want to come in your finery, please join us that way, too. It'll be wonderful. Also, uh, have an opportunity for people who come to share messages to our Film Week critics. Be kind, but you'll You'll have a chance to tell them about some of the favorite reviews you've heard over the years. Get your tickets now at laus.com slash events. That's laus.com slash events. I look forward to seeing you at the 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview in downtown Los Angeles. Well, we have a brand new season of Imperfect Paradise, the podcast series from LA Studios. The new one focuses on Star Garden, the strip club in North Hollywood, which opened its doors, or reopened, I should say, about six months ago after a labor standoff between the dancers at the club who were organizing and the management of Star 
Star Garden. It was a 15-month-long campaign to unionize, and joining us, the producer and reporter of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union, a four-part series, Emma Alabaster. Emma, so good to have you with us today. Hi, Larry. It's great to be here. So let's talk about uh, just how unique what happened at Star Garden is. There had only been one other strip club in history that had unionized, as I understand. Yeah, that's correct. So the first ever unionized strip club was a peep show in San Francisco called The Lusty Lady, but that closed in 2013. So Star Garden is only the second one ever. And to give some context, um, the Star Garden union came in a big wave within the labor movement. There were strikes and efforts towards unionization happening across many industries. Sometimes we called it the hot labor summer. Um, and But this club in particular was pretty unusual in that it was at the time the only unionized strip club in the U.S. And since then, one other club has unionized in Portland, Oregon. And what were the circumstances in, in your view at Star Garden that made it particularly ripe for unionization? Yeah, so the dancers say that part of the reason they were able to unionize is that they developed a really strong backstage culture, and there was a lot of community building, a foundation that allowed them to organize. Our our show includes interviews with a bunch of the dancers, and episode one focuses on a dancer who goes by Wicked. We use the dancer's stage names throughout. And Wicked was the first dancer hired at the club after the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown. So when the club reopened, she was the first dancer there for a few weeks. And as other dancers were hired, she kind of set the tone and laid the ground rules for how things would operate. Many strippers I talked to said it's really common for clubs to be competitive. So dancers feel competitive with each other for money and tips. And Wicked decided to create a different kind of atmosphere. So... She and the other dancers would help each other to get tips. They do things like coordinating schedules, setting COVID protocols. And the dancers told me that this supportive community was one of the things that helped them to organize when issues came up at the club. They felt like they could turn to each other and take action. One of the dancers, Reagan, told me that Wicked was the secret sauce that helped them to unionize. (laughs) And we're going to hear from Reagan momentarily because she's with us in studio today. But let's listen to an excerpt from Imperfect Paradise from LA's studios, Strippers Union, a four-part series. You'll hear from Wicked and Selena talking about the environment uh, that they built at Star Garden in North Hollywood. I've been in some places where it's like, it's vicious, and you are competing, and you can't be friends with any of these strippers because they don't want to be your friend. That was what I told the strippers that were coming in, is like, we're going to do something different. We're going to do something special. I've always been told to be that hard, competitive stripper, not be nice and not compliment and just stay to yourself type of thing. Wicked was just like really welcoming to everybody and would tell me encouraging things that you kind of need throughout the day. That from Imperfect Paradise, the new season, four parts uh, to the podcast uh, series Strippers Union, with us producer and reporter Emma Alabaster. But Reagan, as I mentioned, one of the lead organizers of the unionizing effort at Star Garden and one of the founders of the stripper co-op 
which is an offshoot of the union. Reagan, thanks so much for coming in to talk with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So how did you transition from this sort of competitive environment, which we've just heard described, to one where you were really to be able to pull people together to pursue this? Well, actually, it had a lot to do with timing and circumstance and the fact that it was 2021. It was coming out of COVID. It was coming out of the shutdown, rather. Um, and a lot happened during the, sh- the shutdown in the dancer community. And there were a, there was a large contingent of us that uh, found work for ourselves and, and each other online. And it was a lot of pulling together, pulling together resources, putting shows together and working together in a way that we never had before. And realizing that we could make an online club that we could profit from and profit together. And one of the shows that I was a part of, that I was one of the founding members of, uh, we actually pooled all of our tips. And it was really like one of our, um, one of our, like our, our slogans was camaraderie and community over competition. And for the virtual shows that you did during the pandemic, were a lot of these people, uh, uh, Star Garden customers that you knew over the years who came or, or did you get a lot of new people it was both it was um it, it was customers that 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 many of us had known from different clubs and then it kind of found an audience even abroad, even people outside of of Los Angeles. We had people tune in, and that was one of the great things about the virtual world is you can tune in from anywhere. So we actually had a large audience. We were fortunate enough to get some media attention for it because we were were also giving uh, a a large portion of our profits to uh, community aid and nonprofits. Um, And we were just kind of trying to spread the love and sort of change, change our culture from within. And then when the clubs reopened, Many of us didn't want to give that up, and that kind of bled into returning to the club and the fortune of of having the opportunity to remake a club culture. And that was one of the beautiful things about walking into Star Garden and Wicked. When I when I was hired at Star Garden, there were two dancers that were on this on the roster besides me. One of them was Wicked, and all three of us worked together. And every new dancer that came in, we laid that that foundation and that groundwork, and and we said, "We'll take care of you." Like, let's work together. We can make more money together and we can split the bag, like share the bag instead of getting your own bag. So, Reagan, what's it like now six months into the reopening under and and are you still negotiating the, the permanent contract and what's the vibe like in the club? Yeah, there's a lot to say about that, but um, we are still in negotiations, um, so that is an ongoing process. Um, there, yeah, I, uh, it's hard to know where to start, honestly. We are in a very critical moment, actually. That's why this is actually a, a really special moment to be promoting this this podcast, because it's coming at a moment where you might think that this podcast is a retrospective of like this event that, that, that happened, but it's actually it's unfolding rapidly right now. And this is perhaps the most critical moment. We got to where we are because we we, you, we we were able to unionize an industry that was thought to be impossible or at least very unlikely to unionize. And we did that by appealing to the National Labor Relations Board and filing unfair labor practice charges and asking the, the board to recognize our right to unionize uh, because we have the right to, to unionize as employees. And so we, we, we won that right. We won that fight. We won our union. And now we are asking the National Labor Relations Board to enforce the settlement agreement that they themselves negotiated 
negotiated on our behalf. And the law is useless if no one is enforcing it. And right now, the National Labor Relations Board is not enforcing the law. And so we are left high and dry. We feel completely abandoned. It is the most toxic and hostile work environment I have ever worked in. It's worse now it is than it was before? 100% worse. Everything about it is 100% worse. And so this is this is really great that we have this moment where we have people, new 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 ears listening to our story and, and kind of coming on board because we could really use the support and we're looking to put pressure on the NLRB to make a decision and find them in not in compliance of the settlement agreement and in, enforce the law. Uh, let's hear another excerpt from LAS Studios' Imperfect Paradise, the new season Strippers Union, uh, this featuring the dancer Onyx talking about how great it was to be an independent contractor. Onyx's move into stripping was great at first, when she was an independent contractor. I can make my own schedule, come in when I want, talk to whoever I want, give dances to whatever I want, wear what I want, do what I want, when I want it, how I want it, make money how I want it, and good money. I helped to pay my mama's mortgage. I got to go on vacation, take my cats to the vet. I got to just have more of a viable life. I didn't know how good I had it <laughs> until it changed. Emma Alabaster, producer and reporter of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union. So, Emma, talk a little bit about um, that that whole issue of the terms of employment typically for, for dancers in clubs. Absolutely. So I think one of the really interesting things about the story that Reagan is speaking to and that Tate from Onyx is speaking to is that um, the strip club is a place where some of these questions about the best employment terms for workers are playing out pretty acutely. Um, so I would say um, in 2020, there was a law that was passed in California called AB5 or the Gig Workers Bill. And it turned a lot of independent contractors into employees. And that really rocked the strip clubs. All the dancers I spoke to at different clubs, and to be clear, Onyx is not a dancer at Star Garden. She's another dancer that we spoke to who has a different perspective on what she thinks should happen in terms of um, employment status. So I'll get into that a little bit more. But um, when this law passed, um, a lot of dancers we spoke to said that it had a really negative impact on strip clubs and specifically on more marginalized dancers. And all the dancers I spoke to said that what they want is safer working conditions and better money at their clubs, but a lot of them really disagree with how to get there. Um, for a dancer like Onyx, she believes, as you heard in the clip, that independent contractor status is the best way forward for her. Um, some other dancers have advocated for employee status because it allows them more easily to unionize, as happened at Star Garden. Um, and as you're hearing from Reagan, even, you know, getting the union, there's still more struggle after that for dancers to get a contract that they find favorable. So even though our podcast covers um, some of the nuance in these debates and some of these questions about what can actually be accomplished with union status, um, there's still a lot that remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. And episode four also 
dives into this worker cooperative model that Reagan was also talking about with these virtual shows. And some of the dancers have a dream as well of opening a stripper owned worker cooperative club. You know, it's it's fascinating because uh, Reagan, as you probably know, even within the ride hailing business, a huge split among drivers. There are those just like Onyx who I want the flexibility. I'll deal with the downside of independent contractor status because it's it's more important for me to have that freedom. And then other people like, well, I, I can't I can't make a living under independent contractor status. And um, so, how do you? In your talks with other dancers, how do you sort of navigate this difference of opinion? Yeah, it is it, it is a very contentious uh, topic. And the reason for that, I, I believe, is because that Bill AB5 was not written with strippers in mind. Very few bills are. And so we were kind of swept up with this other economy, with, with this other industry with the rideshare workers, which is really what the bill was what, what was aiming towards. Strippers got swept up in the debris. I call, I personally, and again, this is contentious and not every stripper agrees with me, but I, I, I think of AB5 as a wrecking ball and it absolutely shattered what we knew of as the industry, the, the stripping industry in, in California. And what we have done with the union is make a life raft out of that debris from that wrecking ball. And so there, there is, there's another camp that believes that a carve out is, is preferential and, and that like carving this, the stripping industry out of, of AB5 is the better way to go. And I have to say, I, I agree that, that, that there are huge benefits to being an independent contractor. I, I also believe that it's possible to negotiate a contract that keeps all of those good things intact. Like we don't have to lose the flexibility in scheduling. You just negotiate that in a contract. I just had no idea how easy it would be for employers to negotiate in bad faith and sabotage their own business. Well, and there's sort of a, you know, a bigger issue here. And I think you're kind of getting at it. And my apologies. I don't know if you consider yourself a sex worker or not. I don't know where you would put what you do, but I think generally those who do work with any sort of, of sexual or nudity involved in it, it's, there's no place to sort of sit under the law there so often because of of the kind of marginalization and, and the sorts of, of views historically we've had about doing that kind of work. And, and how much of that do you see factoring into this? Yeah, that it is huge, and I and I do consider myself a, a sex worker, especially just in solidarity with the whole umbrella term of of, of who does sex work. Um, yeah, and that 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 makes this complicated. Um, and I I really believe that I I believe that this is a, a step forward, and I and I want to walk back what I said earlier because I don't think that everything is worse. I think that the the environment in, inside of the club is worse and that is intentional that is that that is the employer trying to starve us out and and sabotage the negotiations he's negotiating in bad faith that aside um a lot a lot good has a, a lot of good ha- has been done here and and i do think that we are still in the process of of, of making these gains and, and that's why we're asking again for like public support and to put pressure on the nlrb because we we are looking 
looking ahead with with the exact same uh, goal to to protect the most marginalized workers because that that is that is our community. We are the most like the the, the, the super community, the sex worker c- community. We we need that protection. We're talking with Reagan, one of the lead organizers of the unionization effort at Star Garden in North Hollywood. She's also one of the founders of the stripper co-op, an offshoot of the union. Star Garden management declined multiple requests to be interviewed for the podcast Imperfect Parent. Strippers Union, but there were statements issued by their attorneys. Emma Alabaster, uh, producer and reporter of the series, can you just briefly tell us what Star Garden has essentially said in response to the kinds of of, uh, concerns Reagan has shared? Sure. Um, In a press release from the club's lawyer, they said, quote, Star Garden denies in, uh, in engaging in any unfair labor practice, end quote. Um, and they cited um, some other actions from the dancers that they found disruptive. Um, for example, uh, they cited the dancers coming to the club dressed as clowns or in Handmaid's Tale costumes, um, and they found that disruptive to the customers. Um, I spoke with Reagan and some of the other dancers about that, and um those costumes, which are something that when they were on the picket line and also in the club, sometimes they coordinate um, themed outfits. And the management found that disruptive and also um, claimed that dancers were not coming out on the floor on their shifts or other things like that. Um, Basically, it seems like um, management is claiming that the dancers are disrupting business and dancers are claiming that management is disrupting business. And um, in the meantime, you know, the union is still in contract negotiations, as Reagan has said. I'm looking forward to hearing all four parts of the series. The first episode, by the way, is out and available now. It launched today. New episodes will drop every Wednesday. It's available wherever you get your podcasts and also airs here on L.A. as 89.3 Sunday nights at 7 o'clock. Emma Alabaster, the producer and reporter of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union, Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Reagan, thank you for coming in studio and talking with us as well. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Come to Star Garden and uh, don't don't ask for Steve because he pretends that Steve is not a person. He he, he goes by Mike. All right, I need to break off. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up, we're going to talk about a condition that affects about a quarter of women, and that's pain. During intercourse, we're going to talk about different treatments and different approaches to it when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. 
support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LA's 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. The LA Times recently highlighted the organization known as Tight Lipped, a grassroots organization advocating for people with chronic vulvovaginal and pelvic pain. It's not clear exactly how many women suffer from this condition or conditions like vulvovidinia, uh, but research has estimated as many as 16% of women. Sometimes it's estimated even higher. Pelvic pain can negatively impact romantic relationships and can lead to deep feelings of shame and of loneliness. Joining us to talk about vulvovaginal disorders is uh, Dr. Kylie Moss, gynecologist with the Centers for Vulvovaginal Disorders, also an adjunct assistant professor at George Washington University in D.C. Dr. Moss, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So this is something that I think many of us have heard about, but had no idea the prevalence of it. And, you know, give us a sense of how common it is among American women. Vulvodynia, or um, so vulvodynia is one of the kinds of pain with sex. There are lots of um, kinds of pain with sex, but just as you said, there are estimates that are as high as 28% of people in reproductive age who have pain with intercourse or vulvodynia. So it's incredibly common. And it's also something that we don't get a ton of training on in educational programs, but lots of people are working to rectify that. At GW, Sarah Cigna has started a fellowship for people who are studying pain with sex. So I think there are a lot of hopeful signs that we're going to learn more about this and be able to treat this better in the future. And and so just generally what we're talking about here is, is pain in the vulva. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, so um, if, if you're talking about vulvodynia, that's the term that's historically been used for any pain that's part of the external female genitalia. And the vulva is where most genital sensation originates. It's vital to sexual pleasure and comfort. And the reason that most genital pain is in the vulva is because of its sensory lo- sensory role. Um, and from a technical standpoint, vulvodynia is pain that's at least three months duration without another readily identifiable cause in the vulva. So the so percentage like a, would be much higher yeah. if you just looked at at um, an episodic uh, vulvodynia, for example. Yeah, I, r- correct. Yeah, certainly lots of people have intermittent or episodic pain with intercourse beyond a technical vulvodynia diagnosis. So for the chronic condition, what are some of the causes? So many causes. Um, One one of the most common things we see at the Centers for Vulvovaginal Disorders is hormonal changes from things like menopause 
or certain medications. Um, contraceptive pills can sometimes have an adverse effect at the vestibule and affect um, comfort with sex. Also, people who are lactating can have um, pain with sex related to lack of estrogen and testosterone at the opening of the vulva called the vestibule. So those are just the hormonal, like broad categories of hormonal concerns. But there are also things like nerve injury related to childbirth or even spinal injury that can affect pain with sex. Do people who suffer from chronic pain generally um, with other locations of the body, are they more prone to have this? In other words, because the, the, the pain sensors are turned on generally? There are certainly underlying conditions that can predispose to both vulvovaginal pain and other pain conditions. And certainly we see overlap with things like fibromyalgia. Um, but there are certainly people who have pain in isolation that are you know, unrelated to other chronic pain conditions. We're talking with Dr. Kylie Moss, gynecologist with the Centers for Vulvovaginal Disorders and an adjunct professor at George Washington University. I'd like to hear from you if you're someone who is dealing with this or has dealt with chronic uh, vulvovaginia, uh, if you'd like to weigh in with, with how it was treated, any frustrations you had with the health care that you received when you identified the symptoms to your physician, uh, things that were particularly effective for you, please share your experience at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. If you've preferred to uh, share your experience via email, that's great. We're at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, how beneficial can lubricants be uh, for this? Is, is the pain so severe that 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 in most cases that just can't address the issue? I think part of the problem with it is that vulvodynia is such a broad term. When we're talking about you know um, pain with sex, it can because of the it can be because of the labia, it can be because of the clitoris, it can be because of the vestibule. So if lubricant can address the problem if the problem is one of lubrication, but there are so many different causes of pain with sex that you really need someone who's trained in a more algorithmic approach to assess the causes and do a careful physical exam to determine what's going to help. It's not wrong to try a lubricant if you're having pain, especially with insertion during intercourse. But if it persists, it's really something that needs to be addressed by someone who has a systematic approach because the area is so complicated. And how difficult is it to find a specialist in this? Because you were mentioning that there's a real absence of training for it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's getting better. And people like Andrew Goldstein, who started the Centers for Vaginal Disorders, Jill Crap, who is um, also at the Centers for Vaginal Disorders and a really important mentor of mine. There are people all over the country in pockets, but and and those people have been working really hard to train others. But um, it is challenging. The people that come to us have often seen, on average, at least six or seven other providers before they get to us. So um, it is really challenging but it's something that we're trying to spread the word about and educate people both about their own anatomy and clinicians about techniques to address pain, like conditions that cause pain with sex. Dr. Kylie Moss with us. Also joining us is Stephanie Prendergast, who's co-founder of the Pelvic Pain and Rehabilitation Center. Uh, she's a pelvic floor physical therapist who specializes in pelvic pain. Stephanie, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So share with us your experience with this and how you ended up spending 
specializing in this form of PT? So I began specializing in pelvic floor disorders in 2001, um, mostly because I was kind of disenchanted with the field of physical therapy and felt like I should have gone to medical school. So meeting, I worked in an interdisciplinary setting with a urologist, um, a sex therapist, and really seeing that patients my age could not sit down, have sex. They had irritated bladder symptoms. They couldn't wear pants. Just was more interesting to me than somebody who sprained their ankle and maybe you know needed a little bit of rehab. And what I saw in my beginning years was how the interdisciplinary team can really work together to help these patients. As Dr. Moss stated, there are medical causes that can cause anatomic changes in the vulvovaginal area. But in addition to that, whether it's a cause or effect, the pelvic floor muscles actually contribute to a fair amount of vulvar pain symptoms. And that has been published, and there's significant evidence across the board that the pelvic floor muscles are associated both with vulvodynia, which we're talking about now, but also a condition called interstitial cystitis painful bladder syndrome. And these overlap in these two patients. Many patients that have pain with penetration also have urinary urgency, frequency, and pain that is not related to an infection. And the connecting factor between these two different areas is the pelvic floor muscles, but also the pelvic girdle. So where pelvic floor physical therapy can come in is we will assess the musculoskeletal system, some of the neurologic structures, and then be able to identify physical impairments that make sense with the patient's symptoms and presentation. And are these exercises that women can do regularly at home to build those muscles? So that's a tricky thing right there. In the American Neurologic Association guidelines, what's actually indicated for these patients is manual therapy. So because these muscles don't cross a joint, a lot of times we're doing transvaginal, transrectal work during the course of their clinical appointment to help the muscles relax. They're actually too tight. And then we can supplement that with some homework at home, but it often needs a combination of both. Interesting. So the muscles are too tight. So if you do exercises to strengthen the muscles, that could make it worse? It definitely makes it worse. And in fact, some of the guidelines state that it's contraindicated for people with some of these pain disorders to actually do the strengthening exercises. Do you think that some women are doing the exercises when they shouldn't be. Yes, because understandably, people think about their pelvic floor, they think about kegels. That's something that most people know. They don't realize that the muscles can get tight and cause the symptoms I described. Nobody thinks, oh, I should go see a physical therapist because it hurts when I have sex. Well, I think the good thing you mentioned is this goes beyond pain and sex, as important as that is, but you you mentioned all these other activities that can be compromised as a result of the pain. Exactly. It does affect a lot of things. It affects urinary bowel and and sexual function. So while we say vulvodynia, a lot of these pelvic pain diagnoses are actually just symptom descriptors, and we really need to get to the bottom with a physician and a PT about what's the underlying impairments. We're talking with physical therapist Stephanie Prendergast, who is co-founder of the Pelvic Pain and Rehabilitation Center, a pelvic floor physical therapist who specializes in pelvic pain. We're talking about chronic uh, vulvovaginal disorders, the challenges women have in the treatment, and often even the diagnosis of what's going on. We're joined by Dr. Kylie Moss, gynecologist with the Centers for Vulvovaginal Disorders. Also with us uh, coming up will be Kena Cassard, who's a licensed marriage family therapist and a founder of Sex Answered, uh, which is an unconventional sex therapy intervention center. One of the specialties 
is on painful sex. We'll talk with Kana when we come back in just one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about chronic pain during sex, vulvovaginal disorders, and the treatments that are available, the challenges in getting a kind of detailed, um, clear diagnosis so that women can uh, have a treatment plan that's going to that's gonna reduce the pain or eliminate the pain over time. We're talking with gynecologist Dr. Kylie Moss of uh, the Center for Vul- Vulvovaginal Disorders, Stephanie Prendergast, who is a co-founder of the Pelvic Pain and Rehabilitation Center. She's a physical therapist. And also with us, Kana Kassard, who's a licensed marriage family therapist and sex therapist and, and specializes in painful sex and and how to treat that. Kana, thank you very much for joining us today. Kana, are you there? Giving it. Oh, there we go. Yes. Hi. Uh, yeah, really glad to be here. It's it's a really important topic to cover, so thank you for doing this. And and let me ask, because I know that this, for you, part of this is your own experience going going through this. You know, share with us how, how you dealt with that and what help you found or didn't. Yeah, that's right. I, back in about 2005, when I was on my path to becoming a, a sex therapist, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm just getting over a uh, COVID infection. So. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> Doing okay, though. Glad to be here for it. Um, so I was, I was on my path to becoming a sex therapist, and I started to have pain during intercourse myself. And I went to probably eight gynecologists who were who just kind of looked at me and were like, I don't know, you need to relax more, have a glass of wine, use more lube. And um, it felt really lonely and isolating. And I felt really dismissed and like something was broken because I hadn't heard about any of this in my sex therapy courses. Um, there was a little bit of mention, but not not too much. It was more just like, yeah, it just is kind of a thing. But um, I spent a long time searching in a variety of holistic treatments and was um, finally connected with a gynecologist who validated my experience and knew exactly what was going on and so provided the treatment for me. But I had gone through about a decade of just having no answers and no hope and nowhere to go with it. So it was it was a really difficult, um, really difficult process. And I'm so glad that we've come so far. Like Dr. Moss was saying, there's a lot of of work that we're trying to do to get this, um, to get more awareness to this. And and Dr. Moss, I wanted to ask you about, you know, uh, because we just heard from Kena Cassard about how very little of this was in the training for licensed marriage family therapists. But Dr. Moss, is is there more instruction of this in um, OBGYN specialty programs to help prepare docs to to help patients with this? I think it's really variable. I think we got some training where I was at um, Ohio State, but uh, which is where I was for residency, but it's it's completely variable. Sarah Cigna, again, at GW is amazing, and she's doing a lot to have um, medical students rotate with her so that you know medical students, even who aren't becoming OBGYNs, can get more sense of this and have a better toolkit for patients. I think you know, the specific training is important, but it's also important that we just imbue students and residents with the sense that if they can't help a patient, then there are two solutions. You can either refer them to someone who you think can help them for their problem or 
look into it and learn more about it yourself. And I think the problem is when people are dismissed because it's an inconvenient thing because the person doesn't have the training. It's okay not to have the training as long as you continue to be curious or send the person to someone who can help them. And we are studying um, actually medical gaslighting in the population of people who are um, experiencing vulvovaginal disorders and find that these things that... Um, um, you were told are so common. Tons of women get told, oh, this is just part of, you know, a normal sexual experience. And it isn't. And it's not fair that people have to live with this or be told or dismissed for the symptoms that they are themselves experiencing. Well, I, and I can understand it. It might be beneficial to hear you're not alone, that this is not uncommon. But as you say, uh, then just, well, there's not much we can do about it or just go about your life and try and figure this out on your own. Obviously not help and stress-inducing, and um, I guess I'm just wondering if there's a way to formalize this more so that this doesn't get ignored. I mean, I think that there are resources. It's just people have to be curious to find them. Um, I think there are fantastic, like there's a fantastic textbook that Andrew Goldstein wrote um, called um, Female Sexual Pain Disorders for clinicians who are who have a patient in front of them and they don't know, you know what to do about. And we have an algorithmic approach to people who have pain at the vestibule that can be incredibly helpful. Um, so I think and and for patients, I think resources like the book When Sex Hurts or uh, I mean, there are lots of great resources out there. Um, but but the point is, like, continuing to be curious and work on the problem rather than telling people that it's, you know, there's nothing that can be done because there are things we can do. Kana Kassard, I wanted to ask you about what, if any, role a partner in sex can play during this? What what can they do to be supportive and and to help their partner make progress? Yeah, they can do so much. A lot of times patients will come to me thinking that they have to do it all on their own. Um, and even if they have the most supportive, wonderful, understanding partners, um, a lot of times they both the par both partners don't really know exactly how to help each other. Um, through it. And so she usually the patient ends up becoming the identified patient, the one that has to take on all the emotional labor. So in the work that we do, there's a lot of patient education about how to rewire the brain so that the nervous system uh, reduces in its reactivity and the partner can learn all of those uh, tools and techniques that go along with reducing reactivity to sex and intimacy because there's often a process that happens even before sex starts. Um, like if a partner will go in to kiss uh, their partner and you know they know that they wanna take it somewhere to the bedroom, the pain patient will often already be sort of sensing this idea of like, oh no, this is gonna lead to pain or disappointment or guilt or conflict. And I really just don't even wanna go there. So they start to shut down. And that's this sexual dance or this like intimate um, or sexual avoidance stance that often happens. And so interrupting that process, it goes so much faster and it's a lot easier when both people get involved. And there can be so many other things that a partner can do to help support their partner as well in like at home exercises, they can set up the room if a partner needs to be, if the pain patient needs to be doing their dilator exercises, for instance, um, doing anything to just kind of help with the emotional load uh, really signals to the pain patient that this is not only in their body, it's it's a part, they can both be a part of the solution together. 
Uh, Stephanie Prendergast, can can you speak to dilation exercises? Is that that something um, uh, and that would be done in the home as sort of prelude to intercourse? Yes, and that it sounds like it's a, it sounds a dilator basically helps to improve um, the diameter of the vaginal opening, or they can be used to help try to relax the muscles at home. And I want to insert a lot of patients may buy these online themselves and try to start using them without the direction of a skilled provider, and they can actually hurt themselves. So when people are trying to help themselves and they're trying to do these things at home, if it's causing an extreme amount of pain, it may be because there is a nerve issue. There could be vestibulodynia that needs other treatment before the dilators are safe and appropriate. But what I see is patients are so desperately wanting to get better, they keep doing this anyway because they believe it's going to help. And so we just want to tell people to listen to their bodies. And if they're really struggling, they don't have a provider. If it hurts, it may not be the right time to do the dilation exercises. And I could see where if if there's a regular partner for sex where this could be helpful, the partner may be in, even involved in that and, and responsive. But if you don't have a partner, if you're someone who's, you're having sex, you have a regular sex life, but you're not in a relationship, you're, you're with different people, it's got to be incredibly challenging. It is. It's very difficult for the patients. And again, some people push through and other people retreat. You're, you're just always explaining yourself. Or in feeling anxious about the problem. And Kate and Cassard, can you speak to that? What are ways that you help your clients who aren't in a relationship but want to have an active sex life? Yeah, because this is something that often keeps people from dating. Um, it, it, it holds them back. So they, they constantly think about, oh, gosh, I have to have the sex talk about my, my pain condition. Um, and so being able to look at their current situation and you know each person is is uh individual in their process and so looking at what works for them is a really great starting point um assessing where they're at whether they're using uh sexual toys or sex toys like vibrators um whether they're having a self-love practice or not and if they're not being able to find uh techniques that they can start to incorporate pleasure-based but not sexual pleasure-based um, if it feels more comfortable with them because a lot of people who have dealt with sexual pain issues often don't even want to connect to sexual pleasure and they they often have a challenge um, in seeking help around their sex life with a sex therapist because it bec it becomes such of a emotionally burdensome topic yeah um, but there can be a lot of tools and techniques to do um, just by getting creative with what they're already comfortable with. And it's just, it's got to be, as 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 uh, the patient sees progress in this, it's got to be so rewarding, that feeling of, of of starting to incorporate sex back into your life if if uh, the patient hasn't felt able to do that. it's It's got to be like a part of yourself being able, pardon the pun, to turn on again, to be able to take part. Kana Cassard with us, licensed marriage family therapist. Stephanie Prendergast, uh, who's a physical therapist who specializes in pelvic pain, and Dr. Kylie Moss, uh, who's uh, with the Centers for Vulvovaginal Disorders and Gynecologist. We'll continue our conversation and I welcome your input. If this is something you've experienced, you can join us at 866-893-5722. We'll be back in a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about vulvovaginal disorders 
or pain during sex. Joining us, Dr. Kylie Moss, gynecologist, Stephanie Prendergast, who's a physical therapist, and Kana Cassard, licensed marriage and family therapist. We have a question from Marie in Los Angeles said, why don't we know more about pelvic floor physical therapy? Stephanie? I think it's not natural to think about physical therapy when we describe the symptoms that we did. And it's a profession that's definitely on the rise. Similar to what Dr. Moss stated, we are not taught anything regarding pelvic floor dysfunction in physical therapy school still to this day. And therefore, anyone who is a pelvic floor physical therapist has had to spend a lot of time and money to get advanced training to be able to start to treat this patient population. Most gynecologists, urologists, primary care doctors may not be aware that we're even a discipline unless they've sought out specialty training. It's just not part of their curricula. And so it's on the rise, but it's not commonly thought of. Mm. And so you took specialized training in this then? Yes, I was trained by a physician. And so my experience was very different um, early on and all pelvic pain patients immediately from the moment I started. Jude in Culver City said, I was wondering about vaginal atrophy, whether it has any relation to this. Dr. Moss. Yeah, it absolutely does. So we're trying to steer away from vaginal atrophy just because it has such a negative connotation and steer towards genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So in people who have a lack of estrogen, they can have less support for lubrication and resilience of the tissue, particularly at the opening um, called the vestibule that's deeper in the vulva. And that can cause tremendous pain, but can also, um, but can also be really pretty easily remedied with topical hormonal therapies. And these are things that people can use even if they have um, uh, contraindication to other kinds of hormonal therapies. Topical hormonal therapies are not absorbed systemically generally in large percent. So they're very safe to use and they can make a huge difference. And that can be the case for people who have other reasons for um, hormonal changes in the area, not just because of menopause. Emily in Westlake wonders, what should we be telling women about birth control in in regards to vulvodynia? I would say um, there's a huge... A number of types of birth control. There can be some people who have trouble with combined hormonal contraception, especially. So, what we would typically or historically call the pill, usually a combination of estrogen and progesterone. Our group did a study that showed that there are people who have um, changes genetically in their testosterone receptors. And when you take an oral estrogen, it increases a protein called sex hormone binding globulin that can make it harder for there to be estrogen and testosterone at the vestibule, this deep ring of tissue in the vulva that's really important for lubrication and comfort during intercourse. It isn't everybody on the pill, and I'm a gynecologist. There are lots of good applications of the pill, but for some people, they will notice discomfort with intercourse on it, and for those people, it may not be the best form of contraception. It's always about risks and benefits and how the individual patient experiences the medication, but it is a consideration for some people. Kina in Hollywood wonders, any recommendations for how patients dealing with pelvic pain can connect with others in similar circumstances? Uh, Doctor? 
Oh, there are lots of great resources. I think Tight Lipped, which you mentioned at the top of the show, is a great resource. There's the National Vulvodynia Association, which can be really helpful. The International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health has a patient-facing website called Prosela that's going to have lots of great information that's um, headed by Rachel Rubin, who's a urologist who does a lot of sexual medicine. Um, and it, the International Society for the Study of Bubble Vaginal Disorders also has resources for patients. So there are lots of places that people can look for um, support for these kinds of things. Kana Kassard, I wanted to ask you, and we're almost out of time, so it has to be really fast. I'm sorry. The mind-body connection here, does, does this end up sometimes in a feedback loop? Definitely. Um, the more pain that a person experiences and the more, you know, emotional pain, the more they're going to want to stay in an avoidance cycle. And then that keeps them from having positive experiences. So if there isn't some sort of intervention done, then you can't break the feedback cycle. All right. And I wanted to ask you, uh, Stephanie uh, Prendergast, are there resources available to help women find physical therapists like yourself specializing in pelvic floor uh, treatment? Yes, there are several websites that we always direct patients to. One is the pelvic health section of the American Physical Therapy Association. They have a finder provider link. Herman and Wallace is a post a graduate continuing education company. They also have a find a provider link. Um, the society that Dr. Moss mentioned, the International Society for Study of Women's Sexual Health, has a resource as well. All right. And uh, Dr. Moss, just in closing, it sounds like it's very important for patients describing this pain to not have it brushed off. They really need to be relentless and consistent in making sure that they get a proper diagnosis and and treatment. Uh, any other advice beyond being relentless in this? Yeah, I mean, I hope that there will be a future where they don't have to be as relentless because knowledge about these conditions is more commonplace. And so I think the onus is on us as medical providers to be better and be curious and investigate and help patients. All right. I want to thank Dr. Kylie Moss, gynecologist with the Centers for Vulvovaginal Disorders. My thanks to Stephanie Prendergast of the Pelvic Pain and Rehabilitation Center and Kana Kassard, licensed marriage family therapist and founder of Sex Answered, a trauma-informed intervention center. Have a terrific day. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.